Welcome to the People's War Radio Show. I'm Dr. Matsumela Odom. And I'm Uwambi Tongu. We just heard Liberation Song, Red, Black, and Green by Gil Scott Heron, Brian Jackson, and the Midnight Band, on which one of today's guests, Bilal Sunni Ali, plays sax. During the 60s, resistance was a common occurrence all over the world. Our Black Power movement was militarily defeated, and today millions of Africans continue to be thrown behind bars as a form of counterinsurgency. Mumia Bujamal has been in prison since 1981 in Pennsylvania. Sundari Akoli has been incarcerated in New Jersey since 1974. The Move 9 were incarcerated in Pennsylvania prisons in 1978 and were just recently released between 2018 and 2020. Today, our program will focus on the lives of two African political prisoners, the late Mafundi Lake and the still incarcerated Imam Jamil Alameen, known throughout the world as H. Rat Brown. We have with us Carolyn Lake, a political activist in her own right, a musician and widow of political prisoner Mafundi Lake, and Bilal Sunni Ali, organizer with the Imam Jamil Alameen Action Network. Bilal was a member of the New York Black Panther Party. He also is a world-renowned tenor sax player who has performed with Gil Scott Heron, Wynton Marcellus, and Stevie Wonder. He is currently based in Belize. Thank you for being on the show, uh, Bilal Sunni Ali. I want to begin by telling our listeners about Imam Jamil Alameen. Many of our listeners may know him as H. Rap Brown, former chairman of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. A so-called anti-riot act was named after him because of his effectiveness in organizing around the U.S. in 1968. Can you tell us about his early political work during the revolutionary period of the 60s? Yes. Um, good afternoon. My name is Bilal Sunni Ali. I'm the Amir of the Imam Jamil Action Network. And I want to express, uh, seek refuge in the law against misleading and being misled. And I asked the Lord to guide my heart and guide my tongue in, in what I'll impart in this interview. The early years during the 60s, uh, Imam Jamil, then known as H. Rap Brown, 
was involved in in voter education, voter registration, and self-defense of voter of voter registration uh, participants. There were people who were being for in retaliation for them voting, they were being kicked off the land if they many of whom were sharecroppers. I was in rural Alabama, in Lowndes County, Alabama. And what happened that they were living in tents, the people who were who were landowners in the area were in support of the movement and they had people living in tents and the Klan came around shooting in those tents. They had already been burning houses down and shooting at people, killing people and maiming people. And a brother by the name of Wendell Parrish and also H. Rap Brown and also brother we, we know very well, uh, Kwame Ture, uh, known, popularly known as Stokely Carmichael at the time were part of the self-defense unit that would shoot back at the Klan. And they were, they were responsible for quelling violence. So even though H. Rap Brown was, was known in the media, in the, in, the, in the state media, in the enemy's media, as promoting violence, he was actually, his action in self-defense was actually what slowed down that level of voter suppression at that time. The, the riot act uh, that was named after him uh, was because he was being very effective in traveling around the country and get, engaging with communities and teaching them about uh, revolutionary nationalism and the need to uh, need to organize around that ideology and and around self determination and reparations. That was that was his platform at at that time. Um, at that he was uh, he had been the state chairman for SNCC. Uh, of Alabama, and then he became the uh, national chairman. He was voted in as national chairman in 1967. Thanks for that. Now, I know that after the state targeted him, he spent about five years in the notorious Attica prison on trumped up charges. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, there were um, trumped up charges. There was at that time a, a, a lot of um, a lot there was there was a lot of agitation around the drug trafficking and a lot of us were meeting with drug traffickers and hustlers who were responsible for the drug traffic and discussing with them ways in which they could alter their activity and develop another form of income and getting them to see that it was detrimental the state claim is that he was robbing a sporting lounge where drug dealers were known to hang out. From what I remember, it was actually meeting to take place, that it was trumped up charges. And amongst those things in the evidence uh, listed was uh, H. Rap Brown's wallet and the wallet of his other co-defendants. Um, so that's just to, not to get into the all the ideas of the flimsy evidence, but that's how flimsy that case was. But during that case, during the chase, um, when the, the police came and interrupted those meetings as they were known to do uh, because they actually protect the drug dealers. And he was shot. Uh, they tried to kill him. He survived. He was sentenced to, I think, seven years in state prison. He did five years, most of that time in Attica. While he was in the holding facility uh, at, at Rikers Island, 
he met with members of the Darul Islam movement who had a practice of going into the prison to, to teach people about Islam. And he went to some of those meetings and eventually he accepted the faith of Islam and he took his Shahada, as that is known, the Declaration of Faith. And his name was changed from Atrap Brown to Jamil Alameen. We know that um, he was under constant attack and he was under constant watch by the state and its various agencies. Can you talk about this? He had been under surveillance uh, probably from the time he was 16 years old, involved in uh, sit-ins and uh, desegregation of local facilities in his hometown, Baton Rouge, Louisiana. His older brother, Amir Alamein, known as Ed Brown, was a well-known activist you know, all of his life. And he followed his brother's footsteps. And he became a full-time activist. Uh, I think his brother was was kicked out of school for his activism. H. Rap Brown actually left school uh, to be more involved in the movement than involved in seeking an education. Now, I knew him back in the days, but I became reacquainted with him in Atlanta. I'm a practicing Muslim, and I went go to the same masjid where Imam Jamil was the imam and part of that community. We had cameras that were right right across the street from our master, uh, directly focusing. He had a store on the corner across the street from the master. So actually, a lot of the evidence, the FBI has it. They could prove that he's innocent in this present case. However, it was discovered that there were over 144 no, not 144. Uh, there were 44,000 documents, pages of documents of, of reports on surveillance that they would not let in as evidence by the defense. The defense was putting forth the correct theory that the state was involved in trying to entrap uh, Imam Jamil and, and they had encircled him and had his almost every move was under surveillance. And that continued right up. Even in his incarceration, they have a unit of the Georgia Bureau of Investigation, which investigates what's going on in the prison. And they still have him under investigation when he was when he was in Reedsville prison. Part of the other activity that the Georgia Bureau of Investigation was involved in is that they had a summer intensive at Georgia State University on terrorism, where they taught that class, that course to uh, cadets of various law enforcement agencies. And they actually taught their students that Imam Jamil Alamein and the community mosque in the West End was a domestic terrorist base. Uh, they also included in that course teaching them that the uh, that the New African People's Organization and the Malcolm X Grassroots Movement were part of a domestic terrorist base. They not only surveil you, but they go about teaching police cadets and people who are seeking a, a career in law enforcement that our activists and that our freedom fighters are criminals. So when you are when you're in school and and being taught that somebody's a criminal, and then when you get out in the field, you view them as a criminal. You view them as as you've been taught. That's what has happened in the case of Imam Jamil and and in the case of many of our other organizers and freedom fighters. Uhuru, can you talk about the last time he was incarcerated? 
and currently why we call him a political prisoner? He was incarcerated. He was taken into custody into in uh, March, March 20th, in the year of 2000. On March 16th in the year of 2000, there was a shooting incident in our neighborhood uh, directly across the street from the masjid where his car was parked and his car was, and his car was shot. There was actually a, a young man who had been on parole, who was on parole at the time, who had come into the neighborhood looking to meet with Imam Jamil. He was part of an of a organization known as the Almighty Vice Lord Nation, which is a street organization who had turned from crime to developing itself into a reinforcement of the values of, of fighting for liberation in our community. And they were seeking to meet with Imam Jamil Alameen. In the course of his seeking to meet with Imam Jamil Alameen, he knocked on the store door. And when he came off the steps, there were two deputies, uh, there was two deputies coming down the, the street, uh, allegedly serving, looking to serve a warrant on Imam Jamil. And they confronted him and <clears throat> He he was trying to explain what had what what was what was going on with him, because he he was packing. He had he had a gun on him. He had guns in his car, and he didn't want to be searched. But they opened fire on him, and he he returned fire, killing one of them and wounding another one. He confessed to this the next morning, to his parole officer. The he fit the description that the sheriff deputies gave. And he was shot. They, the sheriff deputies, they described a man uh, five foot nine, uh, dark brown skin, uh, with gray eyes. And they said they shot their assailant. He has gray eyes. He's dark brown. He's five foot nine, and he was shot that night. He confessed the next morning. However, the district attorney, uh, but more importantly, the the, the United States government, the FBI, had already poisoned the atmosphere. There had been numerous, like when we talked about the surveillance, the uh, tobacco, alcohol, and firearms uh, agents were there surveilling him. The national security was surveilling him. The FBI, of course, the GBI, that's the Georgia Bureau of Investigation. And so all of, all of these people who had painted him as a criminal we're now pushing the idea through the media that this person who 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 we knew as a, as, as a community leader was a criminal, and that they and that's all they were looking for. The the district attorney at that time, Paul Howard, actually said he doesn't want to hear from uh, James Santos, the person who who confessed to the crime, who was involved in in the shooting incident um, when. When Imam Jamil was apprehended um, and taken into custody, he was not shot. And he's, uh, as far as the description, Imam Jamil is, is light brown complexion. He's six foot five and he has brown eyes. So he didn't fit the description as all, was not shot. And the reason that he was in Alabama was because in that area where he had, as a young man, been a uh, been an organizer and a, uh, involved in the voter registration campaign and, this, and the security 
uh, on self-defense on behalf of those early voter registrants and voters. He was in that area because he had developed an Islamic community. Uh, the mayor at that time, Johnny Jackson, had taken his shahada. A lot of the younger people in the area had taken shahada. Imam Jamil is a, um, he's, he's well known for his athletic abilities. He had been given a police, they have an auxiliary police force in Whitehall, Alabama. And he was part of that auxiliary police force uh, just like they have in some cities, the Police Athletic League. Uh, Imam Jamil was part of that Police Athletic League at Police Auxiliary Police Force, which oversaw a lot of the young youth, youth activities dealing with sports. So he was down there because that was actually the evening of the Eid uh, when, when the shooting incident place. So we had all known that he was going down to Alabama. Uh, they said he was on the run, but that's what, that's the truth of the matter is that's actually um, what happened. We couldn't make up a story this good. The truth is so clear that we couldn't make up a story this good. Um, but that's, but that's just, just how the, uh, just how they operate and how they, how they will continue to operate until we until we finally uh, move toward a position of, of power in our struggle for self-determination. And they're no longer operating in our, in our communities and in our territories. Bilal, can you tell yeah. us what conditions has he faced behind bars? Um, he's, he's been facing conditions. Well, initially when he was in Reedsville, Reedsville prison, the sheriff, considered him a political prisoner. And the sheriff uh, gave him, um, you know, as on the international law, as political prisoners are due, uh, gave him special privileges, such as phone privileges. But to go right to be beyond that, he faced some, he faced some very negative experiences and that food was often fed, set, uh, fed to him in a, in a dog pan um he found and he was under lock he was under lockdown 24 hours a day uh they say 23 hours a day um but actually in actuality in most days out of a week you're locked down 24 hours a day and sometimes you get that hour out or 45 minutes out to shower etc et being in prison for so long, he was very healthy when he went in, but he developed a case of, of myomona, which is a precursor to blood cancer. He also developed cataracts on his eyes. He had an operation. He's on the waiting list to have, op to have a second operation, but they're using COVID as an excuse not to, not to give him what he's, uh, what he's properly do. He's a level four prisoner. Level four prisoners are, are to be, supposed to be sent to a level four facility. At a level four facility, there's 24-hour medical supervision. Uh, right now, he's blind. He needs somebody to help him to walk to different places. He's not able to read mail. He had had the habit of answering just about every letter that would come. He would answer it. Now he can't. He cannot read his. He cannot read his mail. 
And that's the, uh, so we're, we're fighting for him to be brought back to, uh, for him to be put on, the, put in a level four facility, but also for him to be brought back to Georgia, uh, where he can uh, struggle and he can be, be with his family and community, and that he can also be around his lawyers as he's fighting for the appeal, the appeal of his conviction. You are listening to the People's War Radio Show, produced by WBPU. Black Power 96.3 FM in St. Petersburg, Florida. Our guests today are Carolyn Lake and Bilal Sunni Ali. Uhuru, Carolyn Lake. Thanks for being on the show. Thank you. Uhuru. You're the wife of Richard Mufundi Lake, a heroic African political prisoner who died in prison on January 21st, 2018. Can you tell us about Mufundi? I understand that you all met when he was first beginning his political organizing. We want to get started by talking about Mufundi's early political involvement. What first got him involved in political life? Well, actually, um, he was involved in political life before then. I just, I probably wasn't. I was more involved in the civil rights movement, but um, I met him at an organizational meeting for the Committee for Prisoner Support and the Atmore Holman Brothers around 1975. But he had previously been involved. And as a matter of fact, his early life in, in the city of Birmingham probably caused a lot of uh, the problems that he had with the police. As a teen, he refused to sit at the back of the bus. He refused to step off of the sidewalk for white folk, and he purposely uh, drank out of the white folk water fountains and kicked the colored signs down. And uh, he would throw bricks in the windows when uh, they asked him to go to the back of the uh, place to eat or order. So he was kind of a person who was resistant, but not nonviolently. So um, that kind of caused him problems, and he was incarcerated. I think uh, the first incarceration was like one in 1960. He was incarcerated uh, for and charged with uh, uh, robber, robbery um, of a white youth for 13 years, almost 13 years. He spent 12 or 13 years that they sentenced him to. And he wasn't that political at that point. He just didn't like the police and they didn't like him. But once he got in prison um, and the conditions were so horrible, he became more politically active. And that's really where it started. And um, after that release, that's when we met. And then after after he was released, you you said that y'all met at a meeting. Yes, he he, uh, he was involved and organized the inmates for action while he was in prison. That was an organization that was trying to better the conditions of prisoners in Atmore and Holman. They had a riot and an officer was killed, and they um, 
killed a lot of the guys who were a part of the Inmates for Action. And when he came out, he was organizing their families to file wrongful death, death suits. And he was trying to organize uh, the people out here to uh, support the Admiral Holman brothers. So that's where we met at a meeting that I went to because I was looking for a, a prisoner organization that helped prisoners, which my nephew was a prisoner. And so that's when I first met him. But I I, I got involved with the Admiral Holman Brothers and the Committee for Prison Support and the Families for Action uh, committees that he had helped organize. And then after that, he got involved with the African People's Socialist Party, came the first chairperson of uh, ANPO, African National Prison Organization. But he was always involved in a lot of different organizations. He, he uh, worked with the SCLC, the NAACP, all of those organizations, trying to uh, get people to better our conditions here. Yeah, mm-hmm. you just mentioned it already, but um, you all got involved with the African People's Socialist Party in the late 70s. During the campaign to free Desi Woods, an African woman who was charged in Georgia with murder after defending herself against a white colonial rapist. Can you tell us about that time period? How was that? There were demonstrations, and uh, at that time, a lot of the people in the party, African People's Socialist Party, would come to Birmingham and uh, try to organize around her case as, and uh, as well as Hurricane Carter's case, I think Demisha Black Earth, she came to our house and um, he participated. I think it was Kay Fing, Omawale Kay Fing, and, and he were uh, organizers in ANPO. And um, there were so many diff- different demonstrations going on. And I had forgotten about one until I looked at the uh, show that came on Sunday on CNN, the uh, People versus Klan, that we were involved in that case because that was in 1981. They tried, they hung that young man, as well as a, a comrade of his in Mobile. They tried to hang him, but then they just said they were uh, joking. His name was uh, Glenn Diamond, and he organizes down in Mobile. And O'Malley, as a matter of fact, he's been down there to speak, and we've participated in demonstrations down there. We were all over the place in demonstrations and uh, trying to help people. Demonstrations for Joanne Little, Asada Shakur, Gary Tyler, Hurricane Carter, I mentioned, the Wilmington 10, and many, many others. He was quite busy. Yeah, Yeah, Uhuru, you mentioned Demisha Blackerf, and... I think she yeah. was the she was the niece of Hurricane Carter, if I'm correct. That's, that's yeah. correct, yeah. You all played a big role in getting Hurricane Carter free, even though I know that, you know, the movie didn't really talk about that sort of stuff. Oh, no, no. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Demisha, I think, was a part of the party, wasn't she? Yes, yes, and she mm-hmm. was the chair of the 
Free Desi Woods committees. I think she even at the age of 19 went over to uh, Europe and helped organize international support for the Desi Woods campaign. So it really does sound like it was a dynamic period that you all really were involved in and in some ways came into revolutionary political life over. But I really also salute what you talked about, really challenging this narrative of the South being a nonviolent struggle. You know, you don't have, if you got to teach people nonviolence as they did in those schools, then that means that Africans had a natural proclivity to resist as Mufundi uh, had been doing to, uh, you know, white colonial domination in the South. Right. So it was, uh, I think he was involved also in this uh, stellar rights uh, projects movement where they had a, the longest strike of tenants uh, to refuse to pay rent. And uh, that's when he got involved with uh, tenant rights. So when he came back from that place, he uh, got involved with, we lived in the projects in Birmingham. So he got involved in uh, organizing the tenants uh, at Illerton Village housing projects. And also the uh, Graymont Neighborhood Association, because he uh, realized that, you know, those were grassroots movements that uh, would get people, you know, involved in trying to uh, get freedom for themselves. So we um, were very, he was very involved in. Uh, tenant organizations and and getting the funding that they were supposed to get because they were have been misusing the funds where uh, for so ma- so many years. Well, he helped the tenants get involved in electing the first mayor of the city of Birmingham. That was Richard Arrington. So it, it was like a we were knocking on doors, you know, and uh, black folk really you know, came out and supported that election. So in 1982, Ofundi testified at the first tribunal on reparations for African people in the U.S., organized Mm -hmm. by the African Socialist Party. Mm -hmm. So Uh we're going to go ahead and listen to a clip of his testimony. Okay. They wouldn't allow me any reading material for 12 years. They took and put me in a cell, five by eight cell, without benefit of any writing material, reading material, uh, radio, TV, non-cellmate for 12 years. Only thing was in that strip cell was a, a face basin where you only cold water, running cold water. There was no bed, it was a concrete slab block. And uh, the only time I came out of that cell was to go to a shower for five minutes. And if you wasn't through showering in five minutes, the water was cut off on you. You didn't have any control of the water. That was for 12 years. And the only way I maintained my sanity was to play mental games with myself. I learned how to play chess without a boat. I wouldn't allow them to destroy me. I was placed. Uh, I was in a cell, stripped one at a time, sub-zero degree weather. And uh, there was no heating, no ventilation. And I was supposed to lie on that concrete block 
and then the guards would come by for additional punishment and throw water on the floor. It would get so cold that the only way I could sleep, I would just run in my cell until I was just completely exhausted, and I would just fall out from exhaustion and sleep. You see the, t the little blocks in the toilet tissue? They used to give us three blocks, actually count the blocks of toilet tissue. And I used to take the three blocks of toilet tissue and lie on that cold floor and put it on my chest and psych myself that I was covering myself with a blanket. You know, under severe conditions, a person play all kind of mental games with himself in order to survive. Shortly after that testimony, Mufundi went back to Birmingham, Alabama, and organized the first African Liberation Day there, which again drew the attention and wrath of the system. We know Mufundi Lake was a well-respected revolutionary. Can you talk about his commitment to the work and the type of impact he had? Yes. Uh, he was arrested probably more than 60 times during that period that he worked after his first incarceration to uh, his last incarceration. They were always harassing him. They were always arresting him. And they even tried to arrest me at one point. They uh, broke in our house and pulled guns on the kids, on our, our sons. And they took our properties and claimed that they were stolen and that he had uh, drugs and all of that kind of stuff. It was just always something. So we were back and forth uh, in court fighting off cases and cases, which he, you know, he was getting a lot of victory, you know, on the cases, except the last one, which they charged him with assaulting a police officer with a deadly weapon twice. And he had already had the first conviction. And then this made three. And then the last conviction was a rape charge. They used a rape charge to set him up to go to prison for life without parole. So the rape charge helped isolate his, like the people, you know, black folk, they believe if you convicted of a crime, you must have committed the crime. But he went to, he was on parole and he went to his parole officer to report and he never came back. He hasn't been back home since then. That was in 1983, June the 6th. But African Liberation Day was in May, and the rape was supposed to have been committed before African Liberation Day, but they didn't arrest him until after African Liberation Day, and we just suspect that it was because we had so many people here in Birmingham who, you know, really would have uh, protested it. So they waited conveniently until afterwards and acted like they couldn't find him. But once he went to report for parole, they just kept him. Alabama has the Habitual Offender Act. After his trial, and he was convicted 
he automatically got uh, life without parole. The party was uh, definitely involved in the political climate here in Birmingham. And our defense committee, you know, since then, we've been trying to educate the people about political prisoners through programs and the Panther Party and, and that kind of stuff. So, but he's been instrumental in directing all of the our activities and trying to get him released as well as to educate our people about what's going on and how uh, they're uh, locking up our people one after the other. African Liberation Day was a uh, was very interesting. It was successful, but uh, six days later, he was arrested and charged with rape. And the way they right. did it was, you know, was almost impossible because we were traumatized, didn't know what was going on. We didn't even know what he was uh, charged with. Uh, they convicted him on a black woman who said that he raped her. But they don't have. They didn't have any any evidence. They didn't do any investigation, no forensic evidence, on even that she had even had uh, intercourse. That's the way it went. Mm-hmm. Appreciate that. You were listening to the People's War Radio Show, produced by WBPU Black Power ninety six point three FM in Saint Petersburg, Florida. Our guests today are Carolyn Lake and Bilal Sunni Ali. Bilal, after the Black Revolution of the 1960s was militarily defeated, the U.S. government and other colonial powers continued ravaging the African community with counterinsurgency tactics to prevent Africans from gaining political power or the ability to create economic development. Incarcerating our leaders and any African who resisted was part of this counterinsurgency. Can you talk about the use of the prison system as a part of this counterinsurgency? The prison system has been a part of counterinsurgency since its inception. The police department started actually as ways to hunt down African people who had freed themselves and to hunt down and and return them to slavery. The 13th Amendment, as you know, was a document that many people mistakenly thought was a uh, document that gave our people freedom, where it actually, it nationalized, instead of it being private property, uh, slavery being private property, it then, they became uh, an institution of the government, because as it says, um, neither slave nor voluntary servitude will be involved Will, will be practiced in the United States or any of its territories, except where someone has been duly convicted of a crime. And then they went about setting up kangaroo courts and kangaroo courts is where you have an all white jury and you know no evidence is needed and you charge somebody with something. They had, they had vacancy laws, which if you were out, uh, they could just say that you were out up to no good and just arrest people. And that was the decision during the, during our upsurges in what a lot of us call the golden years of our struggle, we experienced an upsurge and a more sophistication of this counterinsurgency. And I'm glad you called it that because of the FBI's program called Counterintelligence Program. A lot of people refer to it as counter 
intelligence, but it's actually, as you've identified, it's counterinsurgency, and it's purposely to stop the progress of the Africans moving toward liberation and moving toward self-determination. And the prison is used, again, as in the case of many of our organizers and freedom fighters, in the case of Huey Newton, going back to Huey Newton, Minister of Self-Defense of the Black Panther Party, he was innocent, and that wasn't known till maybe 25 years or more after his trial. He was accused of shooting a cop, where, in fact, the evidence showed that the bullet that killed the policeman did not come from Huey Newton's gun. It came from the gun of the other policeman. A case of, of Asada Shakur and Sundiata Kohli. Uh, sister Asada Shakur was, was shot and wasn't able to even hold up a weapon. But meanwhile, they, they put her in prison. They put her in prison, put Sundiata Kohli. Fortunately, and very courageously, we like to applaud him because he escaped at least three times during his stay in prison. And he, he's now in his mid-80s, and we're pressing for his immediate unconditional release, especially under the attack of the COVID. And the list goes on and the story goes on. Uh, this is for Carolyn. You spoke earlier about yours and Mafundi's association with the African People's Socialist Party. One of the points of the African People's Socialist Party platform calls for the complete amnesty for all African political prisoners and prisoners of war from U.S. prisons, or their immediate release to any friendly country which will accept them and give them political asylum. It reads, we believe that U.S. prisons are all used as the illegitimate tool for torturing, murdering, and holding captive those courageous daughters and sons of Africa who through their patriotic deeds or spoken or written words in support of the cause of our liberation have become political prisoners and prisoners of war. We believe along with the majority of the peoples of the world that it is the duty of the colonized and enslaved to resist slavery and colonialism and to fight for socialism. And those who do so are patriots and heroines and heroes and should be held in the highest esteem. Um, Carolyn, does that still ring true to you? Yes, uh, it didn't at first. I didn't understand. I, I was kind of apolitical at first when I met him. And he would always say that uh, all political prisoners should be freed. All prisoners prisoners should be freed, you know, that we were all colonized. And I didn't really understand it until, you know, getting involved with him and and talking to people and meeting people and reading and uh, understanding what was really going on with the plight of Black people in America. Uh, we even had a program that he organized called Mandela's in America, because we always had a tendency to believe that political prisoners were all, always somewhere else, but never in, in the U.S. But, um, you know, after learning about that, then... You know, it definitely rings true. That's how they continue our slavery, by imprisoning us. Yes, definitely true. Thanks for that. Now, we know that when people serve time, their family serves time as well. Mufundi Lake was locked up in 1983 and spent a great deal of his life behind bars. Can you tell us how this impacted your family? Wow. 
I guess it impacted me to the point where it's even hard to to talk about. When he died, it was so traumatic until I wasn't able to deal with it for a minute. I'm just getting to the point where, you know, I can really talk about it. But we had to do what we had to do. And we were, Mufundi and I were determined that we, our family would be together. We were going to stay together. And no matter what they did to harass him or us, that we would still um, persevere. So it was hard taking the kids, you know, and let them be subjected to the prison searches and um, the long rides to the different prisons because they would, you know, uh, transfer him. I don't know how many prisons he went to, probably about five in five, five different prisons. And they weren't close. We sometimes didn't have transportation, but we would rent cars and I would always take the kids. The last three of our children uh, lived with, with me, but we always went to visit whenever there was a visit, if we could. And then watching your kids be subjected to those searches, you know, from a baby, I think Maya, my youngest, was three months old. Uh, so she was about six months old when we first started going to visit him. And that's all she knows that, you know, him being in prison. So, you know, searching your diapers, searching your clothes and you know, underwear and all of that kind of stuff. You would think that you wouldn't subject your kids to that. But it was more important to us that they knew what was going on and that uh, that they would understand and, and become activists and uh, know who their father was. So he called as often as he could. He was involved in their school and all of their activities, even to the point he would write their teachers and and all of that. So a lot of kids, I think my children say that they that father was more active than some of the kids that they went to school with. So um, it's paid off, and I think they they do understand what happened to him, and they they are proud of him. You know, instead of uh, ashamed. You know, I'm glad we did do that. So that's how they they learned their father in prison, but he was well respected and they knew that he was a giant like I did, <laughs> like I knew he was. But, um, you know, even his parents were living at one point and, you know, older people being searched and harassed. Sometimes you would go to a prison and then they wouldn't even let you visit. You, you would have traveled, I don't know how many miles, but they wouldn't, you know, and he had you know, some enemies there and some of the guards, you know, they, they like to harass him. So they would do, you know, things to him. And the worst part of it was that he, he got sick in there. When he first went in, he was, you know, pretty much healthy. But by the time he stayed several years, he had about three strokes. He had diabetes. He had, um, 
prostate cancer. He was blind in one eye. He lost all of his teeth. He could hardly walk at one point and had to be pushed around in a wheelchair. And no matter how many complaints, uh, you know, against the medical um, conditions we, we made, it didn't change anything. So I'm going through a lot of his papers and things that in files and stuff that uh, he had, which is, you know, kind of traumatic as well. But I know I have to do it, and I want the people to know, you know, who he was. He uh, was determined to fight, but I never thought that he would die in prison. I just always believed that he would get out. And, um, you know, it just wasn't the case. You're listening to the People's War Radio Show, produced by WBPU. Black Power 96.3 FM in St. Petersburg, Florida. Our guests today are Carolyn Lake and Bilal Suni Ali. Thanks for that, Carolyn. The Burning Spear newspaper has named their sponsor a prisoner program that ships monthly news journals for free to any prisoner who requests it, the Mufundi Lake Sponsor Prisoner Program. In St. Louis, the Black Power Blueprint named their re-entry workforce housing fourplex the Mafundi Lake Complex. This year, on March 1st, 2021, the Uhura Movement celebrated Mafundi Lake Day and made the call to free all political prisoners. Can you tell us about that day? Oh, yeah. Actually, that was the third Mafundi Lake Day. Uh, the party had declared um, in 19, I mean, 2019, uh, March 1st, uh, Mufundi Lake Day in Huntsville, Alabama. And then we, the second one was the year after that in uh, 2020. And then, uh, so the, this year was the third one, which was virtual. And so um, O'Malley and, and Mufundi have, have been very close over the years. As a matter of fact, my youngest daughter, O'Malley, is, is her godfather. And um, he, you know, has always been involved in our lives and he always manages to keep in touch and do what he can to support uh, to support us. And when Mufundi uh, first got arrested, he even sent um, comrades here to help us navigate through everything, actually, you know, putting out um, leaflets and uh, information about his case and trying to help uh, get uh, attorneys and that kind of stuff. It, he, he's always been active and, and therefore the party has always been active. And I've always known that I could depend on the party uh, for whatever we needed. And it the the best part about it was that I didn't have to explain anything to him, you know, because he he understood he he understood what 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 happened to him and what was happening to us. So he's always supported us, and so um, the party's um, declaring a Mafundi Lake Day is no surprise, you know it. We really appreciate it. I, we don't. We didn't know what to do or 
how to do it. But uh, Omari uh, and the party has always had um, uh, had our back and and supported us. So I just uh, you know I just call him and cry, and he knows what to do. <laughs> so. I appreciate the party and Omali Ishtela. Oh, 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 thanks for that. Thanks for that. Bilal, how can our yeah. listeners learn more about and support the campaign to free Imam Jamil Alamin and any actions that will be happening? The Imam Jamil Action Network is the advocacy arm of the campaign to free and exonerate Imam Jamil. We have a website which we ask people to go to, which is www imamjamilactionnetwork.org. That's www.imamjamilactionnetwork.org. We also have a website, uh, his son, Kyrie Alamine, who is, is one of the lead attorneys on the case. Kyrie was 13 when the incident happened. He's now 33 or 34, and he passed the Bar Association uh, four years ago. He has a website as well. And that website is www.whathappentorap.com. You use the number two in that. So you just spell out www.whathappentorap.com. There's a petition at, the, at both of those websites with the Conviction Integrity Unit. Uh, we are, we're, we're seeking signatures. We're close to about 80,000 signatures. We want to have at least 100,000. Uh, and where those signatures, the ones we have, have been presented to the Conviction Integrity Unit, and they have all the evidence. The Conviction Integrity Unit is not pressed by, like the um, like the courts are with different rules. They actually have rules in the criminal injustice system. They have rules which make it almost impossible for, to follow in order to seek relief when there's been injustice done in the courtroom, but the Conviction Integrity Unit finally is, is, a, is something that's reaching district attorneys and the Fulton District Attorney has created one in Fulton County and that's what we're seeking. They have the power to reduce the sentence, which we feel is not necessary because he shouldn't have been sentenced. They also have the power to call for a new trial, which those signatures, we are asking for a new trial, but. We're asking for a new trial if that's the best they can do. Uh, but we're, what we're really demanding is that he be set free, completely exonerated, unconditionally. And so we ask people to go to, the, to go to the website and you can find out about activity that's going on. There are people who, in, uh, particularly in Atlanta, Georgia, who are on the, on the street giving getting live, getting signatures on that petition and giving out information about Imam Jamil, formerly known as H.R.A.P. Brown. Thank you very much. And thank you. And thank your listening audience for having me on and for engaging the Imam Jamil Action Network. Our guests today were Carolyn Lake and Bilal Suni Ali. So we say down with the colonial virus, down This has been the People's War Radio Show, produced by WVPU Black Power Radio at 96.3 FM in St. Petersburg, Florida. 
WBPU is a project of the African People's Education and Defense Fund, the baddest nonprofit on the planet, whose mission is to defend the human and civil rights of the African community and address the grave disparities faced by African people in education, healthcare, and economic development. For more information on the African People's Education and Defense Fund, visit apedf.org. Episodes of the People's War Radio Show are available on the Black Power Talks podcast. For updates and resources to fight the coronavirus or to volunteer with Project Black Onk, visit developmentforafrica.org. Thank you for listening. Colonial virus, mass incarceration, that's colonial virus.